This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa College of Medicine. I'm M4 Reem Kador. Here with me today are M3 Nico Dimenstein. Hello. And M4 Ethan Craig. How's it going? And we have some guests today. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Steve Sosby, uh, President and CEO of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. And I'm Zina Salman, and I'm a pediatric oncologist. And just a little bit about the three of us. Um, Reem Kador, M4, interested in interventional radiology. I'm an M3. I'm interested in peds. I'm a graduating med student going into ENT. So we have just a few introduction questions just for any listeners who um, aren't super aware of the organization. So we'd like to ask our guests to give... Um, an overview of their organization. Sure. So the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, we'll call it PCRF, was founded, I founded the organization in 1992 um, to address the what I saw were some humanitarian issues on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. I was working there as a journalist and identified children who needed med- medical care abroad, started arranging it, and have since built, with the help of thousands of volunteers and supporters all over the world, uh, an organization which is quite intricately involved in the medical and humanitarian needs of children throughout the Middle East. Um, And what have your roles been in the organization thus far? I'm a pediatric oncologist and I got involved with the PCRF uh, about three or four years ago now. Um, First, just helping out with clinical missions um, after I saw the health disparities that exist in Palestine and with refugees um, living in Lebanon and Jordan, um, trying to help bridge those gaps for kids who have cancer after being able to treat them so much more thoroughly in the U.S. Um, I'm all, I'm working both clinically and in a capacity building way in Palestine. And I um, do wear a lot of different hats in the organization. Obviously, it, as the CEO, I am responsible for the organization's operations and uh, fundraising, um, the everything that a CEO does, but also uh, on the ground, uh, being responsible for the organization's day-to-day operations. Uh, all of those are significant challenges, but ones which I take great pleasure in doing. What got you guys interested in Palestine? What made you want to do this kind of work? Well, I was active um, being brought up in a family in Kent, Ohio. Uh, My background was, my family was always very conscious of social justice issues. Um, My parents were active in uh, civil rights and women's rights issues in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, Being brought up in a town which had on May 4th, 1970, um, American soldiers coming in and killing four college students protesting the Vietnam War. Uh, it's a small town like Iowa City, and having that legacy while you're growing up uh, was a you know increased I think on a conscious level social justice issues. So um, I was always interested in those issues growing up in the um, '80s. And uh, by the time I was at the university, at Kent State University, um, studying international relations, the Middle East was one that I took a lot of interest in and read a lot about and studied from uh, a political and human rights and historical point of view and uh, realized from a couple of points of view, first of all, that what I understood from the issue was not necessarily what was being conveyed in the media. And also that um, the issue on the ground was a very basic one. It was one related to freedom and justice for an indigenous population which had been violently uprooted from their land. Um, It also had a complexity of a population coming into Palestine who had just suffered one of the most uh, grievous acts of genocide in the history of mankind, um, what had happened in Europe in the 30s and 40s. So that was obviously a very challenging issue, but one that I felt from a current point of view needed more college activism. So I wanted to educate students to at least be aware of what was happening and why there was this conflict. Uh, When the Intifada or the first Palestinian uprising began in late 1987 and throughout 1988, um, I was active in trying to bring speakers and educate students on what was happening on the ground there and had the opportunity to go first in December of 1988 during 
winter break for three weeks and visit with a group of other college students, um, the West Bank and Gaza, and see firsthand what was happening. And that was obviously a life-changing transformation from reading and studying the issue to actually experiencing it firsthand. And after that, I just decided to dedicate my life into this issue and see um, how that uh, dedication uh, evolves. Uh, My story is a little bit simpler, (laughs) 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 Uh, but also more short-lived. As a physician, I had actually gone to medical school in Sudan after growing up in the U.S., which is where my family's originally from, Sudan. And so being able to start doing my medical rotations as a med student um, at a charity teaching hospital in a third world, or as we say now, developing country, and really seeing how different, how huge the disparities are in terms of children not having access to care, the very late presentations of diseases and things like that, really spurred me when I came back to the U.S. to start my residency training. Um, to continue to think about that and how privileged people here are in the U.S. Um, Even though there is poverty, there's, for the most part, access to care here that just doesn't exist in other parts of the world. That pushed me to pursue a master's in public health where I focused on international and refugee health um, that I got um, right after finishing med school um, at Hopkins. And um, where there they talk a lot about saving lives millions at a time is the the phrase there. And that was what initially sort of really drew me to that program. Um, And then after training in pediatric cancer, there was just for me a big dilemma of how do you reconcile these two things? Pediatric cancer, where you have to have the most subspecialized, expensive, multidisciplinary care and then wanting to save millions of lives at a time, which was kind of where my heart was after after my training in Sudan and and my um, my MPH. And so trying to bring those two things together is not something that a lot of people do. By total chance, while I was finishing up my fellowship in New York, um, I came across the PCRF and Steve um, and found out that they had just built a cancer department in Bethlehem um, and that this was a humanitarian effort, which is unlike what you see usually. Um, And so we sort of joined forces. uh, A few months later, I was there doing my first medical mission and looking at how those disparities exist in the pediatric cancer world and finding that there really is a place for that sort of a career. Um, It's a a huge challenge because you can't just go in for a week and do a few surgeries and go back home. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot more of an involved capacity building effort. But for me, that was a challenge that I was really excited to undertake. And here I am a few years later continuing to do that work. And look at the fruits of your of your labor and like and yours like it's look at the incredible program that you guys have kind of helped cultivate nico is actually going to um john hopkins for an mph also that's really cool that yeah very cool that you mentioned that i like to say that that was the best academic year of my life it's really exciting it's one of those places where you want to take every single class so okay um yeah i'm excited for you thank you yeah i'm excited to start as well great I can, we kind of want to give a disclaimer. Um, we want to stay objective and we want to keep it focused on medical health disparities. Um, we know that this isn't a problem that the five of us sitting in a room are going to be able to um, talk through and solve in the time span of an hour. Um, but with a topic this complex, you can't avoid kind of um, at least mentioning some of the barriers um, that politics has to offer when it comes to this kind of um when it comes to this kind of fund. Can you discuss the difference between Gaza and the West Bank and discuss the added challenges, if any, that exist in trying to provide health care to Gaza? Well, I mean, <clears throat> these are significant questions. And I think first, before we owe uh, too much concern for the sensitivity of our listeners, we owe more mm-hmm. so uh, an obligation to the truth and to honesty. Yeah. And I will be honest and I will be truthful and I will do my best to be objective as well. Mm-hmm. As somebody who's been working there for... 25 years running an organization and been visiting for 30, uh, objectivity is is my main uh, goal here. I want to just tell the stories and from my experiences. So the difference, to answer your question, Gaza has a significant different status than the West Bank. Now, internationally, from a legal point of view, they're both under military occupation and international law as uh, developed through the Hague regulations uh, following the First World War and the Geneva Convention following the Second First World the Second World War, excuse me, both apply to the Gaza Strip and West Bank. The occupying power has certain responsibilities to health, to security, to the status of those two territories mm-hmm. um, that apply. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the International Court of Justice uh, and the United Nations and every country in the world, including the United States, recognizes that. Uh, now, on the reality on the ground, Gaza and the West Bank are quite different. Internally, from a Palestinian point of view, you have in the West Bank the Palestinian Authority under the leadership of uh, Mahmoud Abbas, 
who is running the West Bank. He is an ally of the United States. He has uh, close ties to uh, most of the Western uh, and Eastern countries. Uh, he's recognized as the head of the Palestinian Authority. In the Gaza Strip, you have uh, the, uh, and I'm going to use air quotes, the democratically elected regime uh, of Hamas, uh, who are isolated politically on an international level, the United States government, as well as most of the Europeans, and increasingly the rest of the world uh, sees Hamas as a uh, terrorist entity and not a legitimate political partner. It varies, but I would say that that's the, certainly the opinion of the United States. Um, so they have a different status in that regard. So uh, whereas the uh, regime in the West Bank has significant funding coming in from inter international donors, that's not the case for the regime in Gaza. Um, the occupation of the West Bank is internal. There are Israeli troops uh, all over inside the West Bank. They are controlling the daily lives of the vast majority of Palestinians when it comes to travel and other uh, affairs. Uh, in the Gaza Strip, the Israeli forces are controlling uh the Gaza Strip externally through the borders as well as the Egyptian government on the southern border and controlling what it enters and leaves Gaza, whether it's uh, humanitarian aid, uh, basic uh, foodstuffs and things like that. Um, so this has uh, quite significant uh, challenges when you try to have an impact in both areas. You have to adapt your programs and projects from a political point of view. So we as an American organization cannot have uh, any political ties or any economic ties with the regime in Gaza. Uh, from a uh, uh, humanitarian point of view, the way we have to implement our programs on the way in on the ground in Gaza are significantly different than in the West Bank. You can it's less uh, developmental and it's more urgent relief. Um, and overall, uh, the situation in Gaza obviously is much much worse, much more dire. The level of poverty, the level of hardship, the level of dependency of the population on international aid is much, much higher than it is in the West Bank. And for humanitarian organizations like ourselves, we have a responsibility to respond to the needs of the population in the most effective and efficient way and adapt your programs and projects that fit the needs of the population on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, what political barriers um, have slowed you down or prevented you from achieving your goal? And are they international or intranational? The biggest political barrier, I mean, our goal is to help provide sustainable health services for the children in the occupied territories uh, and uh, extending that to the refugee population in Lebanon and Jordan as well. Uh, but f if we're speaking about the occupied territories, uh, the West Bank and Gaza, uh, the biggest challenge is the situation on the ground in Gaza. Uh, we cannot do long-term strong de developmental programs there without... And if you want to, you have to kind of interact with the local uh, authority and we are not permitted to do so. And we respect that. That's the law. We're not going to violate the law. Uh, but it makes it very hard to have a long-term planning program in place that can really have a significant difference when you are not able to interact with the um, stakeholders on the ground, those who are our decision makers. This isn't just for our organization, it's for any NGO. I can tell you, for example, the United States government through USAID had a very significant health project in Gaza where they were pumping in, I think, over $70 million into developing the health sector in Gaza, but they were not able to work with the regime in Gaza who provide 95% of the care for the population there. So the impact was ver negligible. It was almost non-existent because if you are trying to s develop a health system that uh, isn't providing going to provide care for the vast majority of people there, you're not really going to have an impact. It's just a lot of salaries. So, I mean, this is a challenge that all of us face, basically, and you have to be kind of strategic and uh, very conscious of your actions and how they are impacting the population and who you're working with. And these are significant. Internally, uh, you know, we don't want to deal with people who are, uh, um, you know, corrupt or acting in ways that is not reflective of the needs of the population and there are plenty of people there on all sides who are uh, engaging in behavior which is, does not uh, reflect the population's needs or the interests of the people we're trying to serve whether they're individual doctors whether they're uh, uh, officials in the governments and we uh, have a very specific and clear responsibility to st stay away from those people and uh, unfortunately, there's plenty of them, and they have positions of influence and power. So that also impacts our ability to extend our aid and have uh, 
the best results for the limited resources that we have. Um, you guys are building a hospital in Gaza. You, um, you're, you, you got a generator because a lot of the, I mean, everything into Gaza is regulated by Israeli militants. So um, you guys brought your own generator so you'd have a source of electricity and that you had to keep that in the bay for six months because you weren't allowed um, to bring it in. Um, how often do these kinds of things happen where, um, you know, you just you don't get permission um, as quickly as you would like to? Well, there's different layers of permission. You have to get, first of all, coordination through the customs. Um, you know, there's the, and then you have to get coordination through the security. And those are two different branches and they don't coordinate and they're not the same. You can get customs exemption, meaning you don't pay taxes as a nonprofit. We shouldn't be paying taxes on anything. Um, and that's relatively straightforward. You know, there's a government agencies you go through, applications you fill out, that's fine. Once you get the, um, uh, the VAT exemption, you start the process of bringing in materials. Then they're stuck because then you have to have security clearance. And that is something that only a, usually takes place when that item is in country. So you can wait for one day or you can wait for six months or you can wait forever for something to be cleared through the security process as well. Um, some of those security processes are legitimate and some of them are confusing. Uh, and everybody has to deal with them, unfortunately, because that's what occupation entails. Um, so that's another related, added layer of difficulty and challenges that we face. Um, and it's not just for materials. I mean, my, myself, if I want to go to Gaza, I just can't get in the car and go. I have to have permission. And that permission can take weeks and months to be granted. And it's one time and then I leave. And if I want to go back to Gaza a week later, I have to go through the process of applying for permission again. And again, if there's a holiday or if there's some kind of incident or if there's just a bureaucracy or somebody's on strike, I try to get permission last month to go to Gaza, but the people who issue the permits were on strike and nobody was getting any permits to go to Gaza. Well, that has an impact on our work because my job is to oversee and implement significant projects, particularly in the oncology department we're building there. If I can't go there, then this obviously has an impact on the success and the continuation of that project. So these are all things, if you add them up, I mean, they can consider, you can consider them initially minor ones, but if you add them up, they all become significant hindrances to what we're trying to achieve and our ability to do so. Um, would this be like the most challenging thing about working in Palestine or would you consider something else to be more challenging? I think logistically it's, it's extremely challenging. I mean, you have, all of us are human beings and we, there's also the added challenge of wanting to see that, uh, there's going to be an end to this process, to this conflict, that uh, there's hope, that there's light at the end of the tunnel, that we're not just going to keep working and working and working and then see five steps backwards again with another war, mm -hmm. another uh, bombing, another incident that, uh, uh, you know, reboots the whole process back to zero. And unfortunately, you know, for a lot of us, it's, there's just so much frustration that this situation's never going to end, that these kids are yeah. going to continue to suffer and be denied access to care and denied access to medication and people are going to put politics or their own personal interests ahead of the national interests of their people and this is very frustrating and very challenging to wake up every morning and work in an organization where okay you can build a hospital you can train doctors you can treat children but you're going to be doing this for the next 100 years because there's no end in sight of the cause of the conflict and the cause of the misery which is the occupation and the continuation of the occupation. Ethan has um, been to Palestine, actually worked with your fund, and then upon returning, um, some of our fellow med students asked him, you know, aren't we pro-Israel? Um, and when he was telling them his experiences, have you um, had those questions and how have you responded if you had with respect to your fund? There's a couple of answers to that. First, I'm pro-justice and I'm pro-freedom and I'm pro-human rights. I'm not, I don't put any country, including my own, ahead of the most basic common fundamental rights of humanity, freedom, equality, tolerance. That's ahead of any national interest that any country on the planet should have, whether it's Israel, the United States, or any other country. Preach. Palestine, yes. <laughs> uh, but also I consider this work to be pro-Israel. Israel cannot exist in a state of conflict forever. It's not ruling over another people through force is not in the best interest of Israeli security or Israeli society. And this is a fundamental truth. And there's millions of Israelis who agree with that. They can't find a solution to it easily. There isn't an easy solution. It's a very hard solution. 
but I consider the work that our organization does in the interest of Israel as much as it is in the interest of the Palestinians because we're alleviating the suffering. We're trying to build up services and improve the quality of lives so people don't feel frustrated and angry and hopeless. Out of frustration, anger, and hopelessness comes violence, becomes mm. irrational actions, becomes destructive behavior. And that's not in the interest of the Israeli society or the Palestinian society. And so I believe our actions are pro-Israel. It may not seem so if you want to look at it as a zero-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game. These two people have to survive on the same land. They have to share the land. They have to find a way to make compromises and peace together so that they can survive and the next generation can survive in peace. And I believe that's the work of our organization. So one of the things, obviously, that we've talked about and is, is apparent if, if you've read the news in the last lifetime is obviously the chronicity <laughs> of the issue. And then the fact that, you know, tensions and, and frustrations can run high. So since your own involvement has been up almost 30 years at this point, can you kind of discuss how you've felt this has changed over the time? How would you say your own organization's involvement in the area has kind of changed over the time? That's a good question. First of all, I, I have to clarify one thing is that when I started this organization, PCRF, I did not envision that I would be doing it for 25 years. It was, uh, you know, when you're 23, 24 years old, um, your vision is a little bit more limited. And I, my goal was just to help these kids get treatment. And uh, I didn't think I would be a life mission or a life uh, responsibility as it's turned into. Um, but definitely, so the evolution is that I started an organization helping one kid and then five and then 10 and then 100 and doing medical missions and doing much larger projects. So um, the organization's evolved as it's grown with the capacity to take on bigger responsibilities. It's also evolved with the needs of the population on the ground. When we started, there was uh, an intifada where airplanes and drones and tanks were not involved. Uh, bus bombings never happened. Uh, terrorism was not a word that was commonly used. Uh, so our needs were helping children, you know, on a much more limited scale. And as the second intifada began and, uh, the level of casualties became much more significant, uh, the Syrian crisis, the Iraqi crisis produced large numbers of refugee children who needed the support of an organization like ours. Uh, and as the, uh, wars in Gaza from 2008 and 2000 and, nine and 10 in 2012 and 2014, all wars that left a huge number of casualties and uh, immense infrastructural destruction on the ground, our organization had to respond uh, within the capacity that we're able to. And people increasingly look to our organization to be one of the main responders to the needs of the population. So we had to take on bigger tasks and bigger roles. Um, and that has put a lot of burden on our shoulders because that was not how we were initially established, but we find ourselves now carrying that load and carrying that responsibility. Okay. Um, one of the pillars of the organization, as I understand, was, you know, founded upon that, like you were saying, you know, first it was one kid and then it was five. And, and being able to take these, these kids who need help, regardless of, you know, really where they're from, there's kids who need help and getting them to help. Um, and now, obviously, like you said, you speak of the numbers changing and kind of that whole population shift, if you will. I guess let me rephrase that. The whole shift from being able to help a couple people to really kind of take on this larger burden of how do we make sustainable things or make sustainable changes. So can you kind of speak towards where you think that this is all headed then? That's a good question. So we're privately funded. And obviously when you're privately funded, there are limitations to the extent of your growth simply because, you know, we get small donations from lots of people. And that's great. That gives us uh, a feeling that, uh, you know, that we're doing something right and that people like our work, but it also limits your capacity. You know, you know, there's so much resources in that region being squandered. We, uh, from a theoretical point of view, I want to do as much as we can to help as many people as possible. I want to fill the defects and the gaps in the health system that resolve long-term structural deficiencies that we can see uh, the ability of the local health providers to take care of their own children without depending on the PCRF or any external teams or sources to come in and help. We want to see the ability to develop sustainable, self-sufficient, efficient systems and services within the health sector. At the same time, we are realistic to understand that that has severe limitations given the ability of the Ministry of Health and the care providers to operate under the current constraints of occupation in the West Bank and in Gaza, the siege. 
which doesn't seem to be uh, ending anytime soon. Um, so that also puts us th in uh, the context of how we are going to continue to provide uh, the services and the work and the support that we're obligated to do within the political confines that continue to exist on the ground there. And nobody can predict in five years or one year or 20 years what those political realities are going to be. But if we uh, review how that's evolved over the past 20 years, it doesn't look like the ability to be truly independent for a country to develop its own health system efficiently is going to take place. And therefore, our responsibility, as it has been for the past 25 years, probably will continue in the next 25 uh, to balance between the long-term development support, infrastructural support, and the urgent needs of the population. Um, if you could speak to kind of let's take it even a step further then, for, for that public health perspective of the angle, like we spoke about, like in Gaza, you kind of have this more of the urgent aspect. And so the organization can kind of deal with, it's kind of, not kind of has to, it, it really does deal with the difference of like the urgency and, and the need of just helping kids now versus more of kind of these attempts to sustain something that, to help something grow, this kind of capacity building. Could you kind of speak to the challenges of balancing those two things? Sure. I think that um, my perspective in that, again, comes back to seeing children with in who have cancer in the Gaza Strip and how that plays out in that population of children. Um, so one of the things that attracted me to the PCRF was that ability to respond to urgent needs as well as uh, slowly also building up sustainable infrastructure to help treat kids as well. Um, so over the past several years, as we mentioned previously, we've been working on building a pediatric cancer department in the Gaza Strip um, that would be part of a, a ex previously existing pediatric subspecialty hospital. Okay. Um, which is, you know, a long-term project. It involves um, the actual physical building. It involves the planning and the layout um, and how that relates to treatment of children. It involves uh, training of physicians and nurses and pharmacists and other healthcare providers and ancillary staff. Uh, involves, um, you know, the allocation of resources, diagnostics, treatment, that sort of thing. And that's been a long-term project that we've been working on since I joined PCRF now, you know, like I said, three or four years ago. At the same time, um, as a very specific example, but one that, that kind of illustrates the question that you're asking, um, in May of 2017, almost one year ago, uh, there was an acute and complete shortage of medications being transferred from the West Bank into the Gaza Strip. And so uh, this was called a drug emergency at that time where there were no medications, um, no medications being transferred. So we're talking about chemotherapy that children require in order to complete their treatment. And as you all know, um, from what you've seen probably with patients you've treated in, in cancer, there's a protocol that has to be followed and it you know, the, the drugs can be dosed at a very specific hour, not only day, um, based on the type of diagnosis. And so these children are really completely reliant on receiving these medications in a timely fashion. Um, and so one of the issues that happens there is that you have this population that's reliant on these drugs, they're cut off completely, and then all of a sudden you have these children who maybe had an 80 or 90% chance of cure based on their diagnosis to having no chance because there are no drugs and having to apply for permits to leave the strip for a medication that might be a 10 minute IV push. Um, so having to apply for a permit, wait maybe two weeks, have a two or three week delay in their in their treatment, um, and then having to leave their families behind to travel from the Gaza Strip into Jerusalem or into the West Bank where the PCRF's other pediatric cancer department exists. Um, arrive there over the course of five or six hours, receive a push, and then turn around and, and try to head back through checkpoints. Um, and this is a child on their own without their family, without their parents. And so what PCRF did in this instance, along with some other organizations, was try to provide some of these medications on an urgent basis um, to try to fill some of those urgent gaps. So you have that acute treatment, sort of an ac acute on chronic response going on in this sector. Um, so that's one, of, one example, I think, of how this sort of plays out through the PCRF. Yeah, thank you very much. I think that that example not only helps me, but it hopefully helps all of our listeners kind of grasp the difficulties associated with not just these issues in, in such a region, but gives a great, exam a great example of kind of the difficulties of barriers and transportation and access and things like that. So, so thank you for that. Sure. All right, so we'll kind of shift gears here. Something that we'd like to talk about, especially from a medical student standpoint, is what is it like to be boots on the ground providing medicine? You touched about the the department you have in the West Bank, and I think it would be meaningful to hear how does um, the day-to-day -day treatment and operations 
on that ward compared to what maybe our med students have experienced in the United States? Sure. Um, so I can give actually a couple of different examples, one being comparing side-by-side children um, receiving cancer treatment in Gaza to where I trained, which was uh, Sloan Kettering in New York City, mm-hmm. which you know is a place where you really can get access to any kind of therapy within seconds. As soon as you think about it, it's at at your door, it's at your fingertips. Um, Another thing that I did was about a year ago, um, I went on a a medical mission with a colleague to Lebanon to the Syrian refugee camps um, and saw children there who have zero access to care, many of whom had never seen a physician before in their lives. Um, So to start with that cancer side-by-side comparison, um, as I'd mentioned before, I was in New York City and um, trained there as a fellow and stayed on for a little bit. But in New York, um, again, you know, so you have a child who comes in and with a suspicion of leukemia, for example, that child will arrive, um, have their appointments all set up to see the oncologist, to see their social worker, to um, assess their all of their needs. Um, they will have their diagnostic bone marrow aspirate performed, their diagnostic lumbar puncture performed under anesthesia with a specialty trained pediatric anesthesiologist in a specific child specific pediatric anesthesia room or procedure room. Um, They'll be wheeled back instantly after recovering in a specialized recovery room, wheeled back to their private room where they have, you know, uh, games, access to social work, to child life. They'll have their TV, they'll have their own private bathroom. Um, and then they'll, you know, within a couple of hours, we can have um, our pathologist review everything, have a diagnosis made, and possibly even start chemotherapy that same day. And also get a central line, by the way. Yeah. So that could be the, over the course of several hours from a child arriving um, to later in the evening, you could even start treatment. And that's happened many, many times, I could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Gaza, so a child comes into the pediatric oncology, the current department, this is before what we're hoping to open later this year through the PCRF, the current existing department for children with cancer in the Gaza Strip. So if a child arrives um, there with a suspicion of leukemia, um, they will be seen by a pediatric oncologist. There are several very intelligent, well-trained pediatric oncologists in the Gaza Strip who just don't have access to resources. Um, it could take a several hour wait just because of the lack of organization, lack of resources for that child to actually be seen. Um, when they are, probably a blood sample will be taken um, and they might make a slide and look at that under the microscope. Um, just as the physicians without a pathologist present to look at that, there's no access to flow cytometry, which is what we use for the diagnosis of leukemia. Um, we don't have pediatric anesthesiologists who could put the child to sleep for them to get their more specialized testing. So usually a blood test um, if a bone marrow aspirate is going to be done, it might be done the same day. It might take a couple of days. Again, you'd have a physician who's not specialty trained, probably administering um, some anesthesia medicines based on some training they had during medical school. Mm-hmm. Being able to think about those aspects of, of infectious disease, infection disease and um, control and hygiene. Um, so there's that risk there. Uh So under morphology, you would say, yes, this is a stronger suspicion of leukemia. You would not be able to definitively diagnose. They would say, we think this is probably leukemia, and now we're going to do some paperwork. Um, They don't have any specific admin people, so it might take a couple of days to get those papers done to be able to apply for a permit for that child Mm -hmm. so that they can travel. That child would then uh, receive that permit maybe over the course of one or two or three weeks or longer. In that time, they would be languishing in the department without a diagnosis, not being able to start treatment, maybe getting some IV fluids, getting sicker and sicker, and their leukemia obviously getting worse over this period of time. If the permit was received, usually children aren't allowed to travel with a parent who's under the age of 55. Almost all parents of young children are under the age of 55, so typically that child would not be able to travel with their parents. They would have to try to scramble and find somebody else, maybe a grandparent, maybe a great aunt or uncle, sometimes an elderly neighbor who would be able to leave their many children behind to travel with this young child. So you'd have a two or three year old who after two weeks or so would receive their permit and then would cross over checkpoints to cross into, as I mentioned previously, the West Bank or Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or where have you um, to then uh, get to a facility where diagnostics are available and then start that process. So you're talking about a month later, maybe being able to say, yes, this child has leukemia. And now they're going to stay at this other facility for 30 days to receive their induction chemotherapy because that's how long it takes, separated again, uh, which has a lot of psychosocial impacts, as you can imagine, from their immediate family. 
Um, so you have a two-year-old who is not seeing their mother or their father receiving chemo in a, basically a foreign land because for a child in Gaza, the West Bank, Bethlehem, for example, where our department is, would be considered a foreign land. So staying alone um, in another area for 30 days, 40 days, sometimes uh, recently we just discharged a child who spent 90 days before they wow. were able to head back to Gaza and see their family again. Um, and that's the course of a child. Um in the Gaza Strip. And I should mention that if they need specialized surgery or radiation, those things wouldn't be available in the West Bank either. More mm. permits would be needed, more travel would be needed. So there's huge disparities, obviously. Um, as you can imagine, that's what we're attempting to bridge through this work. Sure, absolutely. I I don't know that I ever spent more than a weekend away from my parents before the age of seven, and that was just for... About 21 for me, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so 90 days getting chemotherapy is probably something beyond what any of us can imagine. Right, right, okay. And then you had mentioned um, sort of the contrast in Lebanon, and I think that's an interesting point is to remember that there are just uh, numbers and numbers of Palestinians outside of Gaza and outside of um, the West Bank. Absolutely, so to create an even bigger um, divide or disparity um, and recognize that things can be even worse. We're talking about a time now where we have Syrian refugees who are going to Gaza, flee, fleeing the Syrian war to seek refuge in the Gaza Strip, which is already in its in and of itself such a, a tragic place to be. Um, but when I, in May of 2017, spent uh, about a week in the Syrian refugee camps in Lebanon, um, I was there with another pediatrician providing primary care at this point. This is not a place where you can do any kind of cancer care, as you can imagine. Um, and we were seeing, um, you know, dozens of children each day. I think over the course of a week, we saw about 300 children, many of whom had never seen a physician before in their lives. So we were di diagnosing two-year-olds who had a torch syndrome, a child who was, uh, you know, blind um, and looked to have, you know, uh, eye disease and um, and had a murmur and had so many other things going on whose mother brought them in because she'd only known the child to be that way and actually had brought him in for a cold. Um, and then we would mention, oh, we noticed that X, Y, and Z is also going on. Well, yeah, but he was born that way. So at that point, it was so normalized to this mother because she never had access to care. Nobody would ever say, this is really wrong. And, you know, who can we see and what can we do? Um, over the course of that week, we identified dozens of children who needed surgery and procedures and, and diagnostics beyond what we were able to provide. But at least at a very basic level, we were able to see children and treat infections um, and identify disorders that needed further care. Right. And that's a, just a, another strong example of things you couldn't imagine happening here. It's certainly not on that sort of scale happening here. It's, just, it's hard to imagine. Um, how that all happens. So something I'd like to just give our audience a little bit more about is the, the Huda al-Masri uh, Cancer Center, and I think that stands as just one of the great successes of the organization. When people do overcome these barriers and make it there, where is it that they're coming from geographically? Could you speak to that? Well, uh, we cover the entire West Bank and Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. So anybody who has a Palestinian uh, identity card, uh, and those are people who are born in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, uh, they have access to uh, nationalized health services under the Palestinian Authority. Uh, if you can overcome the access issue, then it's covering the entire population of the West Bank, which is 2.3 million. Okay. And the population of the Gaza Strip, which is 2 million. Palestinians who live in exile or in the diaspora do not have access to this care. Uh, they don't have access because they cannot cross borders, but also they're not covered by the Palestinian Authority. Okay. Right. Again, a lot of barriers but would you describe what are Palestinian children like oh man <laughs> <laughs> well not from a um, pediatric standpoint but just um, observing their personalities I would say that they are some of the most resilient tough kids you'll ever meet in your life mm -hmm. I mean when I mentioned earlier I'm thinking of a specific little girl who had spent 90 days in the West Bank away from her family in Gaza and she was for 90 days laughing, uh, teasing me every time I came into the room in the morning, um, just full of joy and happiness. She'd lost her hair, she was nauseous, she hadn't seen her parents. Um, and I was pregnant at the time and I would come in each morning and do rounds and she would look at my belly and say, yeah, that's still in there, <laughs> making jokes. And this is through receiving chemotherapy, through recognizing that each time you know her testing came back, there would be sometimes delays and 
you know, reasons that she would be expecting to go home in a week and it might be two weeks and three instead and still just um, full of joy and happiness. And I think the same can be said for for almost every child I've encountered. It's really an incredible thing that you I, I haven't witnessed anywhere else in the world. That's something I feel like that we keep hearing over and over again is like the people in Palestine are just the most wonderful people, insanely hospitable. We had Dr. Brad Erickson come in mm-hmm. for the noon talk, pop his head in, and he said the same thing. Every time I meet a med student who's gone there, they say the exact same thing. Um, recurring theme. I really want to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Steve, I wonder, do you have a, a particular patient or an interaction that just has stuck with you? Well, I mean, that's the, it's funny you mentioned this point because that's really how I started PCRF. I was working as a, uh, as a writer. I wanted to share stories of the individual people that I met and how life was different from what we in the United States, first of all, how we live and how we understand how they live. I would go around and I would do stories about people had their homes destroyed or family deported or whatever, just different kinds of stories. And I heard one day about this boy who was from the West Bank town of Hebron or Al-Khalil and had lost his legs and a hand from an anti-tank grenade that was thrown at him by soldiers who were passing by one day. And and I went to visit him because I wanted to write about his story. And what I found was the most remarkable boy I'd ever met. He was going up and down the hallways in a wheelchair. His legs were still bandaged. Uh, He was only 10 years old, full of life, smiling, joking with everyone. He'd only been injured a few weeks before. Uh, His family was not able to visit him. And it was just this amazing uh, level of yeah, so funny and so full of life. And I told myself then, if you know, if I don't help this boy, that spirit's gonna be crushed under the uh, the realities of living the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And it was because of this boy's personality, as much as his situation, that I said, you know, I'm gonna go back home. I have to, you know, go back and, and work uh, in the summer as a as a laborer to to make ends meet. And I took a photograph of him and shared it with a physician in Akron and said, you know, can we help? we helped this boy. I met this, you know, really remarkable child. So full of life and smiling and joking. And, and this guy, you know, within a day had made some phone calls and, and arranged for this kid to get treatment for free in, in Akron. He was the first injured Palestinian child who'd ever come to the U S for treatment. And I was just, you know, a kid from Ohio who'd never mm-hmm. done this kind of work before, but it was because that boy, and he represents literally thousands of kids I've met since then, just very, you know, full of humor, joking, tough, uh, smart. You know, they're all, they all know more about politics in the United States than uh, a lot of our own kids do. I remember I was once walking through a refugee camp in Gaza maybe 20 years ago and some kid, maybe 12 years old, was asking me about Jesse Jackson. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, you know, it was just things like, how do you know who he is? And, you know, it's just amazing kinds of encounters that you have every day that just inspire you and energize you to keep going. That's fantastic. That's really cool. So something that the other students and I had talked about that a little unique to, to pediatrics is that you, you're treating the child, but it's also very involved with families. And what is it like working with Palestinian families? Uh, that's a great question. Um, Steve and I talked about this a lot when I was uh, when we were back in Palestine and I was working in the cancer department in Bethlehem. Um, which was that I was taking these longer shifts than the other physicians because I lived a little bit further away. So I would work sort of more hours over less days to, to make up time lost. And uh, at the end of the workday, when everybody else went home, um, I would go back to the office, which was still just part of the wards, and start typing up notes and the usual front work that we're all you know familiar with which my notes by the way being American trained were so much longer and all the other physicians would say why do you write so much um, so just another difference there but I would sit there and kind of just sit at the computer and I noticed uh, over a couple of weeks that um, the moms knew when everybody else was gone and I was the only person left in the department they would sort of line up outside of the office and each sit down with me and want to just talk through things. And I think part of it was a lot of them being from Gaza. Uh, sorry, I, sh- I said moms, but some of them are, were these grandmothers sure. from Gaza who took on the role of mom, actually. Um, and they wanted to just sit down and, and ask really basic questions like, is my grandchild going to be okay? Like, mm-hmm. what what does it mean that she has cancer? Um, these very basic questions that are things that we take for granted here, again, having so much support staff with social workers and case workers and things like that. There you have these doctors who are stretched so thin 
Um, and so some of that gets lost a little bit in this, in, you know, the day to day, we got to get the chemo, we got to do the procedures, you know, there's two clinicians and 15 children who need X, Y, Z. So a lot of that gets lost. So these families sometimes sort of, you know, get bogged down in the details and miss a lot of the big picture. So sometimes at the end of the day, they would just sit down and say, wow, it's great to have, first of all, a woman doctor. Um, and second of all, to just be able to sit and say, what does this mean? Like ask these really big questions. Sure. That's definitely a topic that we cross is health literacy. And, you know, that is something here in the States, you have a, a wide variety of what people understand. Absolutely. And so that's fantastic that you have one, the opportunity to answer those questions and two, the people that are willing to come stay and ask those questions and get a little bit more caught up. Those were some of my best times actually was just to be able to sit there with those families and, and go through some of that those big picture questions. Great. Uh, something that we also talk about from a global health interest kind of class, as well as just when you have this nonprofit or these NGOs come to these places, how do you build those relationships with um, the group that you're trying to work with? And are there certain things that have helped you keep a, a good, healthy relationship with the Palestinians? I think people want to see, first of all, that you're sincere in your intentions, that you're there to truly help and to understand the lives and the circumstances that they have to endure every day as Palestinians living under occupation. And if you truly are there um, sincerely to, to be a part of their daily struggles and want to help their children, and um, I think that really breaks down a lot of suspicions or uh, concerns that people might have. So. Uh, I think they people can read through uh, very quickly the intentions of of groups or individuals, and I think if you are just constantly showing that your intention is just to help and that you are not putting you're not there with any political agenda or religious agenda mm -hmm. or personal agenda, you're there because your their child needs help. Then people will embrace that, and and you'll have a very positive and good relationship with everyone. Fantastic. Uh, so another thing that I just you have the the benefit of the longevity of how long you've been there, but um, we've talked about some of the successes. What's maybe something you've had to learn the hard way? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I think learning the hard way in Palestine is, gosh, how challenging it is day to day to just constantly have to get up and do this work with a positive spirit and not saying that this is something that, you know, I'm operating with any ill intention or anything like that. I don't, but it's challenging because, you know, I think it's clear what our work is. I think it's clear that we are doing a good job and we're very well intentioned and that our work is important and has a very significant impact in the lives of people there. But you constantly have to always prove again and again, not necessarily to the local population you're helping, but to a lot of people outside who maybe still don't understand what we're doing or how we're doing it, that's really a challenge because 25 years is a long time. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a quarter of a century and it's, you know, more than that when it comes to how long are we live as human beings, especially in our adult lives. So, you know, this is a life mission and, um, and trying to convey that or ensure that people understand that this is something that, um, you know, is done with the best uh, spirit is something that sometimes can be challenging or disconcerting when people don't see that or understand it absolutely okay well as we kind of start to wrap up here a little bit first and foremost obviously thank you both so much for your time um for taking the time and effort to come speak to us today as well as the different lectures that you guys have both giving or given today um i know that the three of us tremendously appreciate it and everyone else's as well absolutely um kind of wrapping up what sort of things or what sort of um, ways do you think that medical students or, or local healthcare professionals or just anyone in general could be involved or help out? What sort of things can we do? Uh, I think that there are a number of ways. As a, a medical student, I think one of the, the big things that you can do as you start to prepare for your career, if you have a career with an interest in global health, is just understanding those disparities first and foremost and recognizing that... Um, you know, there's this sort of, I think, savior um, idea that a lot of us have that we want to go out there. And like I mentioned earlier on is, you know, that um, saving millions at a time uh, that Hopkins had that lured me in because you just want to save lives. That's why we all go into med school. 
um, into the medical field in general is to save lives. But this idea that you're just going to go out there in the world and, and save millions of lives is um, a little bit uh, of a inaccurate approach, I would say. I think it's important to, you know, create your goals and then understand what the disparities are. Recognize that you can't go and cure all the children with cancer. Recognize that you don't want to walk into a hospital in Bethlehem and say, oh, I'm from New York City and let me tell you guys how this goes. You really have to be there and be a listener first and foremost. And I think it's 90% listening and recognizing what the needs are, recognizing how these people are working. Because honestly, I mentioned earlier on how people, for example, operate in Gaza. I had a lot to learn from them. They were making a lot out of very little. They were doing those lumbar punctures using IV needles with you know, minimal experience in anesthesia and they had no complications. So there's a lot to learn from people mm-hmm. who, can, who are able to do something like that. Sure, that's not what we want to do. And sure, you wouldn't get all of your stamps and certifications here in the U.S. if you operated that way. But I think there's a lot to learn from people who are so resourceful. And so we shouldn't go in there with our, you know, all of our knowledge and all of our board certifications and say that we we know and, and we're here to teach you guys. I think first and foremost, you have to be a good listener and understand what those disparities are and, and understand what the needs are rather than coming in with your own ideas of how to fix their problems. Is it just healthcare providers that can be a part of this? Can other other kinds of people be a part of it? Uh, of course, in our organization, we are very broad in the areas of volunteerism. So we have host families. We have people who are involved with uh, running our chapters who take care of kids, run them their appointments, help us find local caregivers who can take children from overseas, who um, raise awareness and raise funds for our work, who... We have people who are um, preparing Christmas cards to sell to their community, and that money goes to the cancer department in Bethlehem. There's, we have high school students who are active and have clubs. We have university clubs of college students from all different uh, areas that they're studying who are involved in bringing speakers and raising awareness and bringing more attention to the work that we're doing or the situation there on the ground. So it's definitely the fact that we are so dependent on health providers is only one aspect of the organization's structure. We definitely depend on businessmen, housewives, students, um, people from all walks and backgrounds to, to make our organization successful. Um, that's our show. Um, we'll put links to some of the topics we've discussed in this episode's show notes at theshortcoat.com for your reading pleasure. Um, but for now, me, uh, Nico, Ethan, Steve, and Zena are... Um, we want to thank you guys so much for taking time to hang out with us. Um, thank you to our listeners for making us a part of your week. If you like what you heard today, we hope you, we've earned your subscription. Also, we'd be grateful if you'd open your Apple Podcasts app right now and leave us a review there. Reviews help us come to the attention of other listeners who might benefit from our show. If you have a suggestion for something we should talk about or seek barely informed, sleep-deprived advice, you can send those things to theshortcodes at gmail.com. Or you can leave a message at 347 S H O R T C T. The show is made possible by generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox, and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you all in a week.